0: For people who've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lateforce.org. Thanks. Today, I'm going to talk about forgiveness, but I want to start with a story. Story with Pastor Aaron. Once upon a time, there was a dynamic and growing financial company in the Carolinas called Bank of El Fargo. It was considered one of the best places to work in the world, and they spared no expense in taking care of their employees. They offered on-site meals, on-site child care, pet care, auto care, and lawn care. They provided flex time, five years of maternity leave, paternity leave, aunt and uncle leave, and grandma leave. A company issued computer, a company issued car, a company issued condo. They even offered a company issued spouse if you needed one. It was considered the premier place to work. Well, one year, a bright young graduate, top of his class from Chapel Duke, was hired (laughs) as the new chief financial officer. He was put in charge of a brand new market division and oversaw $50 million in capital. It came as quite a shock then when it was discovered later that this young manager, This new CFO had lost all $50 million to some risky and questionably legal investments. Though he was well compensated, the amount that he lost for the company vastly exceeded his personal net worth. There was no way he could ever pay it back. While all this went down on a Friday, social media blew up over the weekend. And the first thing, Monday morning, the young manager was called into the CEO's office He didn't even have time to get his half-calf, double-pump, extra hot soy vanilla latte that morning. The young manager walks into the boardroom with all the board members and the CEO, and he is terrified. So he throws himself at the CEO's feet and begins begging for mercy. Think of my wife, he says, and think of my kids. Give me time, he begs. I'll pay every dollar back. At this, the other board members begin to chuckle because they know that his debt is well beyond any that could ever be paid. But what happened next was even more shocking. Instead of calling security, instead of throwing the young manager in prison, the old man, the CEO, decided to do something unthinkable. He canceled the young man's debt. With compassion in his eyes, the CEO looked at him and said, Go home. Tell your wife. Tell your kids that everything is going to be okay. Then come back the next morning and work for me again. Everyone was in shock. Time magazine ran a cover story on him saying, who is this CEO of grace? The only word from the CEO, a tweet, one word, forgiven. Well, the following week, life was back to normal. And the young manager was at his desk working when an email notification from PayPal popped up in his inbox. It reminded him of 50 bucks that his college roommate owed him from a previous debt. Now, his college roommate, Jay, was a low-level minimum wage data entry guy who worked in the basement of Bank of El Fargo. So the young manager took the elevator all the way down to the lowest floor. He found Jay's cubicle and he confronted them. He looked him in the eye, he said, pay me what you owe me now, I demand it. The low-level employee looked at him and said, I don't have it on me. Remember, I am the sole caregiver of my children and my aging parents. Could I have at least until payday to pay you back? By this time, everyone else in the office is watching. Surely this manager is just pretending to be mad. Surely, after the grace and mercy that he experienced from the CEO, surely this manager would forgive a mere $50. But much to everyone's surprise, there is no mercy, no compassion, no forgiveness. The manager calls for security. The employee is fired, told to pack his things and to get out. Well, it's not long before the CEO hears about what happened. So he calls in the young manager to his office, Only this time it's just the two of them. The CEO looks at him in the eyes and says, you just don't get it, do you? You were forgiven, but you have not forgiven others. You were shown mercy, but you have not shown mercy to others. You were offered an economy of love, but you chose an economy of vengeance. And with that, the young manager was fired, removed, never to return again. Now, some of y'all might recognize that this is actually a story that was told by another storyteller. It's a story that Jesus tells to his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. And in case you missed the point of the story, listen to how Jesus summarizes the main point of this story. The very last verse of chapter 18, these are the words of Jesus. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat you excuse me, treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I want to pause here, because let's be honest, this is kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, I understand the point of your story, but, but really? Jesus, why so harsh? Why so emphatic? Jesus, why do you care so much about forgiveness? That's what I want to look at with you today. Because the truth is, this is just the kind of world we live in, isn't it? We live in a world of tit for tat. We live in a world of payback. We live in a world of litigation for everything that could possibly be litigated. It's just the world we live in. But Jesus has something he wants us to see. Interesting thing about Jesus, you might not know this, but one of Jesus' favorite methods of teaching was through story. Stories just like this one. In fact, in the Bible, he calls them parables. And Jesus used stories to get through to people when no other method of teaching would get through. When our defenses would not listen to straightforward logic, Jesus would use a parable to get around our defenses, to pierce our hearts with the truth because it was the only thing that would work. That's why Jesus is uh, fond of saying, hey, I, I teach in parables because even though they have eyes, they can't hear. So that's why I teach in parables. It's the only method that works. And that is exactly what's happening here. There is something about forgiveness that the disciples are missing. Something that we miss. Something that is essential to the life of following Jesus. And I believe that its truth is found in this story. Now, Jesus' life and his message was all about forgiveness. Uh, Jesus was uh, a broker in forgiveness. It was a part of his teaching from the very beginning. But uh, by this time in Matthew, the disciples are just struggling. They're just not quite getting it. This was a very central piece for him. In fact, uh, you might be familiar, one time a young lawyer came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what's the most important commandment in all the Bible? And Jesus said, well, you are to love the Lord your God, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. You may have heard that before. But did you know that Jesus is actually quoting from an Old Testament book called Leviticus? He's quoting from chapter 19. Listen to these words and the context in which Jesus is pulling He says this, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Let's pray and go home. (laughs) Instead, confront people directly so that you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that interesting? Did you catch that? The very context of Jesus' most important command is the context of forgiveness. Now, by the time we get to this chapter in Matthew, by the time we get to chapter 18, uh, the disciples are sick and tired of hearing about forgiveness, right? Jesus has been teaching about that. He taught them how to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. They've been hearing about forgiveness, but they just aren't getting it. And at the end of this long, long lecture that Jesus has given on forgiveness, Peter finally has the courage to speak up. So he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He pulls him aside. He says, Jesus, listen, listen come here. God. But I, I need to ask you a question, okay? Because I, I hear what you're saying about all this forgiveness stuff. I get that. But I, I, just a quick question, Jesus. Look, look, what I really need to know is how many times do I have to forgive someone? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, this, this Jesus, you know, the backstory here, Peter's got somebody in his life, doesn't he? I mean, there, there's, there's a story here, we don't know it, but there's somebody in Peter's life who has been wronging him, who's been wounding him. I don't know, maybe his boss keeps taking credit for Peter's ideas. I don't know, maybe his mother in law is driving him nuts. Whatever it is, there's somebody in, in Peter's life. He's like, Jesus, how many times? Please, just tell me. And then he musters like a, a real brave answer. Like, Is seven enough? Right? He's just going to put a number out there and try, maybe trying to impress Jesus. See, this is a question that we all have. Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Well, what I want to unpack in this question from Peter is two assumptions that I think Peter is making about forgiveness Two ways Peter gets forgiveness wrong that Jesus wants to correct with this story. And it might just be that we need the same two lessons. Because see, Peter comes to Jesus with a basic assumption, and that is this. That forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender. Forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender. See, Peter's convinced of something, and it's something that we're convinced of too, that that to forgive someone is to do them a favor, right? If I forgive you, really, I'm, I'm I'm just being nice to you. I'm just doing you a favor. And here's why we think this. Here's why you probably think this. Because when someone hurts you, when someone breaks a promise, when someone betrays your trust, whenever we are hurt, there is always a debt. There is always a sense that the other person has taken something from us. There's a debt in the relationship. That's why we say things like, you owe me an apology. Right? You get the feel for the debt? Whenever someone is hurt, whenever there is conflict or turmoil in relationship, there is always a sense that the innocent victim comes away feeling as if someone owes them. Some of you feel like your boss owes you. Maybe like Peter, your boss keeps taking credit for your work, you're like, "Dude, hook an employee up, right? Come on." Or maybe you feel like your, your spouse owes you some attention or some respect, or maybe your parents, or maybe your teachers, you feel like someone owes you something. And here's what happens, because you start to store that up, you start to build your kit, and eventually here's what happens: You get ticked. That's the Hebrew word. <laughs> you get mad. Because they owe you and they aren't paying up. And here's what we do. We start to do just like what Peter does. We, we quietly start to keep a record, don't we? How, how many times did they do that? And, and we're, we're, they don't know that we're keeping. We got our little record. It's right here. Or we keep a little journal or whatever. We know how many times it is. And we are beginning to build a case against that other person. And they don't know it. But somewhere in our hearts, somewhere in our minds, we know every offense and we are waiting for the day. But you know what else we do? At least I do this. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're better than I. I just think this is so funny because this is so true of me. When, when I feel like somebody owes me or somebody has wronged me, I start to have these imaginary conversations. Do you do this? Right? The other person's there in my mind. And you know what's so great about imaginary conversations? I always look so good. <laughs> I mean, it's like an episode of the Gilmore Girls. I always have the exact right thing to say. Just... <laughs> boom. And then like, there's always an audience or a crowd that goes, oh, boom. right. That's what they, because that's my conversation. I'm in control. And, but we have these imaginary conversations and the other person looks so foolish and we look so good. And we just play it over and over because it feels so good to be right, to be owed. But something deeper is happening. Now, if you were to stand up here and tell us your story, you were to come and say, well, Aaron, you you don't understand. Let me tell you what so-and-so did to me. You come up here, you tell your story. We would all say, you are absolutely right. That person is rotten. They owe you. We would no doubt agree that you are in the right. But somewhere along the way, This anger takes root. And then maybe for some of us, those of us who might call ourselves Christians, this other voice starts to chime in as well. And we begin to, this other voice says this, I shouldn't feel this way because I'm a Christian. And then we start to get depressed because we turn that anger in on ourselves and we stuff it and we push it down and it goes inward and it begins to spill over into the lives of those that we love most. And this... This is why Jesus is so serious about forgiveness. This is what Jesus knows. He forcing to forgive is like pushing the self-destruct button on our life. I love how the author, Nadia Bols Weber, describes it. She says this. She says, When I can't harm the people who harmed me, I end up harming the people who love me. And isn't that true? This is just true of us. This is what happens to us when we let that anger, when we get that sense of that person owing us and we nurture it in our hearts. The truth is we will never move past our past until we learn to walk the path of forgiving. That's the first lesson Jesus wants Peter to see. But the second lesson builds on it. The second assumption that Peter makes, the second thing that Peter gets wrong about forgiveness is that Peter thinks forgiveness is something we do on our own power. There's a little nerdy thing that happens in this next verse. You'll have to forgive me. This is just Bible nerd stuff. You'll remember Peter says to Jesus, uh, Jesus, if I forgive seven times, is that enough? And for us, this might just seem like an arbitrary number. He's just grabbing a number. I don't know, seven sounds good, but Peter's actually saying something quite profound. In the Hebrew culture, seven was a significant number. Seven was considered the number of completion, the number of wholeness. That's why there are seven days in a week, seven days in God's creation, only seven ingredients in homemade chocolate chip cookies. It is the picture of perfection. So when Peter says... Up to seven times. What he's really saying is, Jesus, is it enough if I do my best? Is it enough if I forgive him up to my limit? Up to seven times. But look at how Jesus responds. Jesus answered him, I tell you, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. To which Peter must have thought, I just got Jesus juked. Literally. Literally. Jesus, I can't do that. I thought I was being a good boy, doing it seven times. What are you talking about seven times? That's impossible, Jesus. And Jesus says, that's exactly the point. Peter, on your own, you will never be able to do this. Now, let me tell you a story about Bank of El Fargo. See, this is the big idea about forgiveness, that Jesus has been trying to get into the hearts of his disciples for 18 chapters of Matthew, and they still have not gotten it. For Jesus, forgiveness is not something we muster up by our own strength. Forgiveness is something we can only give to others after we have received it. This is why Jesus says there is always a link between God's forgiveness in our hearts, and our ability to extend forgiveness to another. Now, I was trying to think of a way to explain this. Do y'all remember the first time you learned about Wi-Fi? Does anybody remember, remember Wi-Fi? It's so ubiquitous now. We don't even think. But just try to go back. Some of y'all don't. If you don't know what Wi-Fi is, don't raise your hand. That'd be embarrassing. Well, just track with us here. Wi-Fi, right? Uh, I, remember, I remember the first time I, I was wrestling with this idea of Wi-Fi. I had a, a, a computer that I could not get to load. Like, like the, the computer worked, but unless it was connected to Wi Fi, my, my little browser, what was that called again? Netscape? Net, net, anyway, you guys are right. And, and I just couldn't get it to work, right? Without the Wi Fi connection. This is a lame example, but do you see the vertical and horizontal connection? This is the best I could come up with yesterday. Vertical, horizontal. When we do not understand God's forgiveness in our life, it becomes impossible for us to operate. In our relationship with others. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is found in Luke chapter 7. And it illustrates this connection between the vertical and the horizontal. Jesus is eating dinner with a bunch of religious leaders. Doesn't that sound like fun? When all of a sudden this woman barges into this meal. She was known to have been a prostitute in their community. And she comes into this dinner. She just comes walking right in. And she's got this jar of Chanel 5 that she just got from Macy's. She comes and she pours this whole thing out on Jesus' feet. And everybody's watching. The religious leader's like, what? This is crazy. But see, they had failed to offer Jesus even a bowl of water to wash his feet. And yet this woman has come in and poured herself out literally for Jesus. Well, there's a lot of commotion, a little bit of conversation. And then Jesus turns to the religious leaders and listen to what he says. He says this, the person who has been forgiven much will love much too. But those who have been forgiven little, love little. You see, the reason Jesus pairs his forgiveness with ours is that forgiven people tend to become agents of that which they have received. You want to be a forgiving person in your life? It will never happen until you have experienced the forgiveness and grace of God in your heart and out of the overflow of that into the lives of those around you. So how do we do that? I mean, it's great for Jesus to say, hey, I need you to forgive others the way I have forgiven you. It's it's great. But how do we actually walk this out? Well, in the last few minutes, I want to lay out for you four stages, four steps in the process of forgiveness that we can walk in light of the forgiveness that we have received from Jesus. And I need to give a little caveat up front because sometimes, somehow, in, in the church and kind of the Christian subculture, we've gotten this thought that forgiveness is like a light switch. That that somehow I just go over there and I just flip it and then, oh, I'm forgiving. Right? Like but forgiveness is not actually a light switch. Forgiveness is a journey, it is a process, and one that we can only walk with the help of the Holy Spirit. So, four stages, four stages, and I walk through these. I want you to imagine that person in your life who has wronged you, that person in your life where you might have been withholding forgiveness, maybe even chained by the bitterness that comes from that wound. The first stage in the journey of forgiveness is what I'm going to call hurt. Hurt. Lewis Smeads, who's a, a theologian and expert on this, uh, writes that hurt, the kind of hurt that creates a crisis of forgiveness, is marked by three things. It is personal, it is unfair, and it is deep. Now, Hurt in the hurt stage is when we are recognizing that what the other person did to us actually wounded us. And this might sound kind of obvious to some of us. We might think, Aaron, what's the big deal? But, you know, this is honestly a big struggle for a lot of us. For many of us, simply allowing ourselves to feel the pain, to acknowledge the real hurt, that real harm was done, is next to impossible. We say things like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm over it. Or, oh, you know, that didn't really affect me. Or, well, I've already forgiven them. I flipped the light switch. I once talked to a man in his late 20s. He was in my office and he was sharing with me his story. His parents had abandoned him when he was five. He had never known them. He was adopted by a great Christian couple. He was well-loved for and cared for. But when I was meeting with him, he was meeting with me because he was struggling to form meaningful connections with others and he wanted some help. And when he told me about his parents, I said, boy, that, that must have really hurt. And he said, oh, no, 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 I mean, I, I'm over that. That's, I forgave them, that's not a big deal. And we moved on in the conversation. But the more we talked, the more we went on, the more I realized that he had never really faced the pain of that abandonment. And that was the very thing that was preventing him from forming meaningful connections. As a result, he was struggling in friendships. He was struggling in dating. You see, he was afraid to admit the pain from his parents because he was afraid that somehow it would take away from the goodness of his adopted parents. So I sent him home with a homework assignment. I said, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to sit with God sometime this week in prayer and ask God, imagine with God, how God feels towards that five-year-old in his abandonment. He said, okay, I can, I can do that, Pastor Aaron. That doesn't sound too hard. So, so he went and did that. Came back a couple weeks later and we were sitting on the couch and I walked in, I asked him, I said, how did the homework assignment go? And before he could even speak a word, it was like fire hydrants turned on as tears just started running down his cheeks, literally dripping off of his jaw. And this big smile came on his face. And I asked him, I said, are are these good tears or are these sad tears? And he said, I don't know. I think it's just the first time I've ever cried over what happened to me. My friends, it is not unchristian. It is not unkind. It is a necessary part of the forgiving process to admit the hurt that we have suffered. When we pretend that what happened didn't actually hurt us, that's not called forgiveness. That's called denial. And if we are going to move past our past, if we are going to truly forgive, we must learn to name the hurt. Smead says that hurt that requires forgiving is personal. It's unfair and it is deep. What is that pain for you? Because we've all got it. What's that pain for you? Have you ever had the courage to name it, to name the person, to yourself or to God? If there's a hurt you've been carrying around or been too afraid to admit, what if today you simply were to acknowledge it, to tell the truth to yourself? The first stage of forgiving is the hurt stage. Second stage is another H because I'm a preacher, and that is hate hate. Now, this one is going to make us really uncomfortable because as Christians, we're not supposed to hate, right? Like we're supposed to hate, hate. I don't know how all that works. Hate the haters. So here's the thing. This is actually a vital part of the forgiving process. Anger is our natural human response to pain that is unfair, personal, and deep. But anger is also one of the ways that we try to make the other person pay for what they have done. We feel pain So we want to make the other person feel our pain. That's one way we try to get them to pay us back. And the problem is that so often we get stuck right here and we can actually miss out on the freedom that forgiveness brings. And it's here that we must make an important decision. Remember, hurt is a kind of debt. In fact, uh, it, it can be seen as a kind of chain around us when we refuse to let go of that debt that the other person owes us, we are actually chained to them. We are actually chained to the event that wounded us. And it's here that we face a critical decision because the only way forward, the only way to freedom is to do what Jesus invites us to do, and that is to cancel the debt, to release the other person from what they owe us. And this, my friends, is the real power of forgiveness. And you know what's really amazing about this? This has nothing to do with the other person. They they don't even have to be in your life anymore. You don't even have to talk to them. They may no longer be living, but you can still choose to release them from that debt. I love how Natalie Bolz Weber describes this again. She says, it's like God has given us a grace. Powered pair of bolt cutters. Isn't that a great image? That we are invited to dig down deep into the grace and mercy that God has given us and to courageously take the bolt cutters and say, I refuse to be chained to this debt any longer. I cancel this debt. I release that person. They owe me no longer. That is forgiveness. And it's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross he canceled the debt. Well, eventually we will reach the end of our anger. We will maybe come to that decision. We'll decide to cut the chains. But there is a third step in this forgiving journey. And that is our third H. Don't you love it? We're sticking with the H's. Third stage is heal. Heal. You see, with that decision to cancel the debt begins the process of healing. Healing. And you know that that healing is happening because God's Holy Spirit begins to sow freedom into your heart. You no longer wish the other person ill will. You actually come to the place where you can wish them well. It's freedom. It's forgiveness. It's what Jesus offers us. The chains are gone. We have been set free. Now that healing may not come overnight. It may not even come in a week. It may take years But that is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in us once we have decided to cancel the debt of the other who owes us. Well, there's a fourth and final stage, and I wish I could come up with an H for it. I could not. The fourth and final stage is reconciliation. And this, my friends, is the only step that requires the participation of the person who wounded you, which means that not every journey of forgiveness is going to reach this stage. But when the other person is able to, when they are capable of owning the wrong that they did to you, of acknowledging it and repenting from it, then reconciliation is possible. Then the rebuilding of trust is possible. Then the healing of the relationship may be on the horizon. But it is not guaranteed. Because that one, reconciliation, takes two to tango. The first three are up to you. And as we conclude today, I want to give you an invitation to respond. Because this journey of forgiveness, this journey of healing, is only made possible by the power of the cross. It is only through Jesus' help that we can walk this road of forgiving. What step might he invite you to take today?